innovating in the marine environment is really, really difficult and it's extremely unpredictable and it's a very different pathway to success. However, I will say that it addresses a lot of the same land-based issues that the climate tech folks are also trying to do. With this context here on the Gulf Coast, I see this as entrepreneurship out of necessity and not as a nice to have. You cannot do meaningful development without capital. I thought that if I could develop a technical skill set to be able to approach this from a systemic perspective, maybe I could disrupt things and, and change how that's happening. Welcome to the Blue Economy Primer, a New Orleans-based podcast where you learn from the experts, the practical tools and solution sets that will empower your community to adapt and thrive in a new blue era of rising seas and economic discontinuity. Today, we're speaking with the market lead for Gulf Coast and federal and state agencies for Sea Ahead. Haley's work at Sea Ahead supports early stage startups in the blue economy with infrastructure and access to funding, two important drivers for success that entrepreneurs are often missing. Sea Ahead has a proven success bringing together these blue tech entrepreneurs, investors, industry leaders, and stakeholders. Haley, thank you so much for joining us on the Blue Economy Primer. Can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Um, thank you so much for having me. My name is Haley Bathurst. Um, and as you stated, I work for Sea Ahead. I've had several different roles, but currently leading our government and state and federal relationships, um, primarily focused on this region of the U.S. Great. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your background? I understand you uh, are originally from New England, but you've studied in Chicago and also had some interesting experiences overseas. Yes. Um, I've been all over the place. Uh, so I'm born and raised in Western Massachusetts and uh, did my undergraduate in Rhode Island at um, Roger Williams University and studied political science and law. And um, throughout my time in undergrad, I was really focused on international development as an opportunity. It's something that's always fascinated me. Um, so the Peace Corps was a reasonable and logical trajectory for me. However, I didn't make it into the Peace Corps on the first shot. So I decided to go out and start you know, working. Um, and I love Providence, Rhode Island, and Rhode Island in general. I'm also a surfer, so it was, it was an easy stay for me. Um, so I moved after school to Providence, Rhode Island, where I was working for Social Enterprise Greenhouse for several years. And I started as an unpaid intern for almost a year before I was about to jump ship. And they were like, wait, 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 we just got all this government funding. We'd love for you to run our health and wellness accelerator program. So I built that program over two years, um, running focus on social enterprises. So truly businesses that want to do well and do good in the community, also while developing a solid bottom line but really focused on the health space. And when we say health and wellness, everything from med tech devices to like holistic yoga studios and wellness practices. So the gamut, I had to learn fast, um, interviewed a lot of people. We built out this advisory council of experts comprised of folks around the health and wellness space in Providence, Rhode Island and Rhode Island writ large and graduated two cohorts, I believe of about 14 companies over the two years, um, most of which are doing pretty well. I've been able to stay in touch with some of them. So really delved into this entrepreneurship space from a social enterprise angle, which really touched on my uh, focus on doing well and doing good in the world. And my curiosity was really about 
the interaction or nexus between policy and law and seeing how you can create social change within that nexus and which one pushes which in terms of the mechanism or a catalyst. And I really loved getting that business-based experience because I realized now that business actually and entrepreneurship is what pushes and breaks the paradigms and can be positive disruptors. And then policy follows and then law follows third. So it was a really interesting perspective for me to get that experience because I was over here thinking I was going to law school. And um, after my two years at SIAHEAD, I actually revisited the Peace Corps opportunity because now I had some practical working experience, which is the feedback I received in my, my initial rejection. So I you know, got my courage back up and applied um, through the, it was the Community and Economic Development Program. So um, a perspective of using entrepreneurship as a means for economic empowerment for vulnerable populations. Um, Developing world countries have a lot of unemployment, high unemployment rates for a whole number of reasons, most of which are systemic. Um, So the thought process was how do we use entrepreneurship as a means for economic empowerment for these populations? So needless to say, I looked at a map and I picked a country and uh, decided to go to Namibia. All the timelines lined up perfectly when I was ready to close my chapter at SEG. And I applied and was accepted. Um, And so I packed up my bags in 2018 and moved to Namibia for two and a half years, um, where I worked. uh, Initially, you have three months of training and then you get deployed into the field for the remaining of your service for the two years none of which you have any control over where you go or where you're appointed. So I found myself working in local government and running the local economic development department for uh, a a regional municipality. Um, Peace Corps volunteers, by the way, are not supposed to be having full-time jobs like that. Uh, But when I arrived, the woman who was in the office went on maternity leave um, as I got there. So I was left with this, <laughs> was left with a, uh, um, a big opportunity as I saw it to really dig in and learn fast, um, similar to my previous experience with SEG. Um, and throughout my two years working in regional government, I learned how to work with all of the various stakeholders from the established business community to the street vendors to um, multinationals that were involved in the region and really what the perspective was is how to act as a liaison between all those pieces right um and one of the big projects that i worked on primarily was how to empower the street vendors to be able to feed their families not only for a day but for a week and for a month and so it was a lot of financial literacy classes and Um, really digging into entrepreneurship as a means for their economic empowerment, right? That was the whole project. Um, So I did that for over two years, a lot of youth work and a lot of work with um, women, which I loved and still keep in touch with a bunch of them. Um, And then the pandemic happened and I was pulled out of Namibia probably two months before my service officially ended. And remind us, where's Namibia? Namibia is on the western coast, right above South Africa, between South Africa and Angola. Um, So sharing the Atlantic Ocean from my my New England days. So same ocean, but a very different region. Um, Yes. And so the pandemic hit? 
And I was evacuated and went back to Massachusetts and felt like I was just like spit out on the other side of this crazy, you know, tunnel. Um, but while I was in Namibia, I had, a, I had applied to graduate schools. I was applying to graduate schools from this perspective of, you know, the Peace Corps is really a wonderful opportunity. But what it taught me is that you cannot do meaningful development without capital. And working with entrepreneurs was great, but if they couldn't find funding, they weren't going to go anywhere. And it felt like I was almost like, I felt like I couldn't give them the true value of what they needed because I, as a Peace Corps volunteer, had a lot of restrictions. I was not allowed to be actively fundraising. There wasn't a lot of foreign direct investment in the country, and there wasn't a lot of resources overall. So it's like there was a, there was glass ceilings all over the place, and I maybe not even glass because you could see them, right? Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to do something about it. And I thought that if I could develop a technical skill set to be able to approach this from a systemic perspective, maybe I could disrupt things and, and change how that's happening. Um, so I decided to go to University of Chicago for grad school, um, and in a master's in international development and policy program which was really fun. It was a full year program, a bridge. So it was extremely compact. Um, and I was the only American in a cohort of 30 international students. Wow. So I learned so much from my, from my colleagues uh, in the program and from all over the place, like truly every country in the world. You're coming a bit from the, from the healthcare space and social enterprise, and then now are focused on the sort of blue tech or ocean ocean technology. So I can certainly see some parallels in terms of uh, the, the social enterprise and world impact. But uh, how do you how did you see those coming together? Or what drew you to this, the ocean tech or blue tech? I guess it's a bit of serendipity. And also now that I've been with Sea Ahead for about two years, I'm seeing how this is really coming full circle for me. So the serendipitous piece is that when I graduated, I was applying to jobs for almost nine months in the middle of the pandemic and was not finding employment. And I got a call, a connection through the startup, another healthcare startup I was working with throughout grad school, um, getting connected to Mark Wong, who is the co-founder of Sea Ahead, and actually come to find out he was running the economic development department for City of Providence when I was in Providence. And we had met each other several times, but never really worked together in a, in a meaningful way. Um, so I got reconnected to Mark and Mark called me and said, hey, we've, you know, got some really interesting stuff going on. And how do you feel about moving to Mississippi? And I said yes and packed up my car and drove to Mississippi. Um, the, the full circle piece of it is that my dad is the national canvas director for Clean Water Action. So I grew up around environmental issues and water issues specifically my whole childhood. During college, winter and summer breaks, I was out knocking on doors and raising money and doing political campaigns for all types of environmental issues. So it was something that I knew and that I knew was super important. Um, I didn't necessarily see myself in the ocean and blue tech space, but I'm a surfer, as I said, and you know, grew up in this environmentally focused household. So it sounded like a really interesting challenge to me. Mm -hmm. And so with Sea Ahead and the work that you're doing there, what is... See ahead's uh, institutional interest in New Orleans, and how, how do you how do you see that working at a regional level? Sure. 
So um, let me preface it by saying that I ended up in Mississippi first, right? So, and now I've been expanding into New Orleans. Um, Obviously, the geography, it's really only an hour drive, if anything. So why not? Plus, New Orleans is a lot of fun. So that's not a hard sell uh, by any means. But initially, the project was focused on coastal Mississippi and the perspective of um, University of Southern Mississippi reaching out to see ahead and saying, hey, we've got these great coastal assets. Um, and we'd really love to learn how to catalyze these things. You know, what does it look like to get people interested in the, in the Gulf Coast? Um, and so through an economic development report that we wrote in partnership with several other folks, what we proposed was that a lot of the pieces were there and it was just a means of truly catalyzing that energy. And so we proposed a program, an accelerator program, and that would bring in companies to the Gulf Coast, right? Because that blue tech ecosystem was nascent, if not non-existent at that point. So we brought companies to the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and we were astounded by the fact that we got almost 50 applicants across 12 different countries for a program that was brand new, right? And what we learned is that all of those companies had already identified the Gulf Coast as a place that they wanted to do business. So we were just giving them a reason to come. And you're providing like real technical infrastructure and and facilities? Correct. So it's a, um, the program is a six month program with technical expertise, leveraging SIAHEAD's network of mentors. We have a global network of mentors. um, And we are basing this off of our Blue Swell Incubator program, which is now this year in its fourth iteration. So we've really learned how to do this. Uh, in terms of scaling, identifying applicable technologies that can be, you know, backed by venture money and then scale them. And that's what we wanted to do here on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Um, And then, you know, because we, as I said, it's so regionally close, I started playing a lot more in New Orleans and leaning into what is happening in New Orleans because there's density here, which is the one piece we were really missing in Mississippi. There's density, there's a culture of entrepreneurship, there's a lot of infrastructure to support entrepreneurs in New Orleans, and it's a really intriguing opportunity for us to expand into a new region. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's exciting to hear you describe New Orleans in that way, because a lot of the folks that we're working with at Deep Blue, uh, and and certainly Deep Blue as well, those are the the type of ecosystem that, that we're trying to build. So you've probably heard this idea before of uh, New Orleans as the most northern Caribbean city as opposed to uh, really uh, less of a North American city. Uh, what for you, what has it been like to come to New Orleans and doing the things that you're doing and, and adapting to the local culture and economic landscape that, that's, that is pretty unique? Right. So as I mentioned, right, I've lived in a several in several different places from, you know, being abroad to Chicago to here. And when I did live on the live in Chicago, I lived on the south side of Chicago. Um, And I think for me is I always want to live in the communities that I'm aiming to serve. I think that's a principle of Peace Corps as well, Um, because if you don't see how people are living, there's no way you're going to be able to understand how to meaningfully help them. And really from a systemic perspective is really my, my approach. And so New Orleans is an incredible city, but it has a lot of poverty and it has a lot of struggles. And a lot of those problem sets are similar to what I saw abroad, right? 
And this is not to compare Namibia as a, you know, rising low middle income country to New Orleans. However, the systemic problems are actually pretty similar. Um, there's a lot of lack of access for the most vulnerable populations to meaningful employment. And there's so many things that are preventing people from being able to see themselves progress in a meaningful way. And that's something that I think entrepreneurship plays a really strong role in. And you said you've done, uh, you had a particular focus or interest in working with women in that context as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, women are, and there's so many statistics about how women, you know, you give a woman a dollar and, you know, she turns it into $10 and you give a man a dollar and it goes away in a day. <laughs> um, <laughs> not to be, you know, gender specific here, but, yeah. well, you know. I, I, I've heard those studies and I'm, like, I'm not going to push back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, you know, women are obviously the caretakers of, the, of not only their families, but their communities and all of the people around them. Um, and so integral to, to strong community development and societal development. So yes, I think working with women is something that I really love and am very passionate about. And I will say that the blue tech space or the tech space in general is predominantly male. And I think that's come from a systemic lack of access and exposure. Um, and I would like to be someone that disrupts that paradigm and shows that women have a place in, in any field, never mind blue tech. Great. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that uh, my experience here in New Orleans over the last few years, uh, working with some pretty incredible women community leaders. So I, I think that that's going to be an easy fit for you uh, doing work in New Orleans. So for you, what are some key ocean technologies or project types that you're watching come online that could be important new tools for coastal community resilience? Sure. Um, so let me speak a bit about the companies that we had in the Gulf Blue Navigator program this previous year. Um, and we just accepted, as I mentioned, a fourth cohort into the Blue Swell Incubator. So some really interesting stuff coming out. But the, the previous cohort on the Mississippi Gulf Coast was really focused on um, ocean robotics and ocean data from a perspective of if we have better data, especially nearshore data, which we, there is a severe lack of, we can make better decisions and put that into the hands of public decision makers. So, for example, um, one company based out of, out of California, he's out of San Diego, but has now officially registered in Mississippi. And I think he's registering in Pearl River County um, to be able to bring this, this opportunity to rural communities within Pearl River, um, is C. Trek. And he has a, his, the founder is Yi Chow, um, and Yi has developed an autonomous float, which goes into deep ocean. Um, and it bobs itself up and down in the water column, and it reports real-time ocean data on a number of variables, um, replacing NOAA's Argo floats, which are made with lithium-ion batteries, are inaccurate, maybe report every once a week, if that, and if they get lost, they sink to the bottom of the ocean, which is obviously a serious problem. Um, Yi's technology will uh, generate its own energy based on phase change material, so it is entirely autonomous. As it goes up and down in the water column, it melts and hardens, it solidifies, and it's reporting data almost on the hour, um, if not more frequently. So why is that significant other than being really cool technology? Um, is that you can have better hurricane prediction models because all of a sudden your deep ocean data is being reported rapidly in real time. 
So all, you know, those spaghetti models that have been historically pretty inaccurate. And also when storms shift, this thing could be able to tell you when that's going to happen in real time so that the public decision makers could, you know, make evacuation orders or whatever they need to do earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a great example of one of the coastal resiliency storm-related um, applications, and obviously that's really pertinent to this entire region. Um, but a lot of the other ocean data, coastal mapping kind of folks are really looking at all types of variables from you know nitrates washing out into the Gulf of Mexico and measuring what that looks like. You know, oyster restoration has been a big focus. Um, oyster reefs are really important to coastal resiliency because it can slow down storms and it can act in carbon sequestration and all of these other applications. Um, I would say that some of the interesting folks that we've had in this new cohort, we have some cellular agriculture plays. Um, so Marina Spio is creating, is trying to disrupt, um, you know, black market food chains like caviar and sea cucumber and abalone because she can grow these things in a lab. Um, and she is an aqua vet by training and has been able to develop her own tools and technology to be able to create um, these food products in a lab-based environment, um, which still feels a little sci-fi to me, but it is truly incredible. Um, and um, she's doing really well and getting some great initial traction. Um, and then, of course, the, the um, carbon sequestration and MRV technologies are really big right now. Um, and we have several companies in the program that are looking at those aspects as well. Yeah, so we've certainly been uh, particularly recently interested in the in the carbon credit space mm -hmm. and uh, that how that 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 sector has been a bit in turmoil. So, uh, are you seeing anything? Do you have any particular interest? Are you seeing anything particular going on in terms of how that carbon credit or carbon sequestration space is developing? Yeah, and it's a tough space. Um, it's a really, really tough space. I think every, but the market itself is not nearly as developed as the technologies are, which is a problem for the startups, right? It's hard to get uh, traction in a marketplace that is nascent. Um, and obviously, when we talk about developing markets, it means that dollars have to be there and customers need to be there. And because we haven't really figured out that end user piece of things, it's a really, really tough road. However, we have seen a range of carbon sequestration uh, technologies, whether it's, you know, various formulations for concrete for coastal restoration, Natrix, who actually is coming out of the Louisiana backyard. Um, he is, that company is working on, you know, um, using eco-concrete uh, and diffusion to build these really cool structures that get set into the living coastline that can sequester carbon, but they also act as a habitat for all of the life that's within there. So it's living and building into a coastline to, to bolster that. Um, very, as I mentioned, lots of, lots of approaches to different types of concrete. Um, and then some other folks that are working on devices that you would drop into the water, especially around offshore aquaculture farming, that could measure what's happening and then be able to actually like reset the, the dynamics of the water um, to be able to, um, you know, basically make sure that the, the fish and the whatever you're growing in the off-pen aquaculture is getting the nutrients that it needs. Wow. Yeah, a lot going on. Uh, I want to remind everybody that uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be posting lots of references and links to some of the, thing that's Haley, some of the things that Haley's talking about on the webpage for this podcast. So folks who want to dig a little bit deeper, uh, there'll be lots of opportunity to do that with the links on the site. 
So Haley, what does the blue economy and blue tech development mean to you? And how do you contextualize Sea Ahead's role in that development? Sure. So we are, let me answer the last one first, which is that we are a first mover in this space. Um, Mark and Alyssa, the co-founders of Sea Ahead, we're about five years old now, so saw this five years ago, that there is a big gap. When we talk about the climate space and climate resiliency, everybody is focused, about, focused on land and the water is an afterthought. Ocean is an afterthought. We start and innovate in the ocean. Um, we are focused on the fact that, you know, all of the statistics around the ocean and how much CO2 it's absorbing for us, not only the fact that it covers most of our planet, um, and that we would be in some serious trouble if the oceans weren't doing what they're doing for us. Um, but of course, humans don't live in the ocean, so we don't think about these things as much as we do with land-based issues. So we're trying to change that. Um, and really draw attention from ocean enthusiasts and sailors, right? Longtime sailors that have been mentoring with SE, or sorry, with um, with uh, Sea Ahead for a while now because it's just a passion to folks that are really new to the tech space and want to find ocean-based applications. So that's our focus area: is to focus on the ocean and ocean innovation. And in terms of the role in the blue economy, you know, speaking about so. The blue economy has always been there. Um, this is, a, I would say, a refresh or a rebranding on what's happening with the quote-unquote new blue economy, um, which came out in NOAA's uh, strategic plan. Their recent strategic plan was labeling the new blue economy. So when I see a rebranding, it's simply that the blue economy has always been, you know, ports and shipping, fishing. Um, you know, offshore energy production, all of these typical industries that we've always known and not really thought much about. Well, now the question is, how do we do them better, right? Now that we have the technology and the data to make better decisions and do them more efficiently, what does that look like? And that paradigm shift is going to take entrepreneurs who are going to disrupt those things and bring these things to market so that all of a sudden we can, you know, decarbonize shipping and we can think about better ways to optimize port logistics. We can look at things like, you know, offshore wind and carbon sequestration and biodiversity and all these other topics that are a necessity at this point if we are going to adapt to our changing environment and our changing world. And then I'll also say with this great with this context here on the Gulf Coast, I see this as entrepreneurship out of necessity and not as a nice to have, right? You, the folks of New Orleans and of the Gulf Coast know this better than anybody, is that this is going to happen no matter what, and we really need to adapt. And in that adapting, it's going to be bringing this techno these technologies to market in a way that's meaningful and at scale. So in that context, do you have any favorite key benchmarks or statistics that crystallize the Gulf Coast climate crisis for you? And in that sense, perhaps related to the inevitable impacts that you're talking about on coastal communities, both here and around the world? So less than statistics, I will say that um, actually flip this question and think more about the ecosystem that's receiving a lot of these things. So um I will say that I have been very surprised about the fact that climate change is accepted among the Gulf Coast, you know, wherever you fall in that political spectrum. We are finding traction here because, as I mentioned, this is entrepreneurship out of necessity, right? 
And so what I was so pleasantly surprised about is that I didn't need to tiptoe around these issues because it was known, it was accepted, and it was a, okay, so now what do we do, right? So Mississippi and Louisiana are red states. We're talking about deep south red states, right? But it doesn't matter. There's a recognition that these things need to happen and they need to happen now. And even if we're thinking more of an economic development lens of how do we create jobs in the new blue economy, it doesn't matter. There's money behind it. The states are on board. There's policy behind it. And, uh, you know, Louisiana has been making policy around water um, and the Gulf of Mexico and adapting to the climate crisis far before many other folks because you've had to. So I think that that is a really interesting context for this type of regional development, because it's not a question, it's, it's a necessity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So looking out a few years here, what would be sort of your vision or how, how, what kind of presence would you like to see Sea Ahead have in New Orleans or the greater New Orleans area in, in the coming years? Sure. So, you know, for us, we want to support the existing infrastructure that's here and then add our, as I say often, connective tissue, right? Which is that recognizing the competitive advantage of each of these spaces. So the Mississippi Gulf Coast has amazing core facilities and assets for in-water testing, which is an essential piece of the commercialization process to bring Bluetech to market. They also have access to federal agencies because they're co-located on the Gulf Coast. That's really important because that creates opportunities for um, that rapid iteration and development for Blue Tech because they're getting real-time feedback from their potential partners and customers, ideally, right? Um, and understanding more of how to work with the government is going to make these things scale faster. And then in Louisiana, Mississippi, or sorry, in New Orleans, you have the context of this density and this existing infrastructure for supporting startups. So, you know, folks like Idea Village um, and Propeller are creating programs for entrepreneurs. And obviously, Noe is playing a big role in in the the shiny object of what entrepreneurship means for New Orleans. And then you have folks like Deep Blue, you, Greg, um, as well as the Water Institute and a number of other players that are doing more of the ecosystem development, the implementation, and looking at what those things mean on a wider uh, scale. So I think for Sea Ahead, we take this objective approach of recognizing, you know, who is doing what in terms of players in the space and where can we play a supportive and connective tissue role. And so what I see here in New Orleans is that, you know, there is not a large focus on, you know, tech And yes, there is some climate-related work, but it's not hard tech-based, right? Hard tech and deep tech are something that I haven't quite seen. And I think that's where we can come into play and leverage all of what we've been building for the last five years to help those existing entities recognize what the gaps and needs of startups in that space are, and then how do we collectively develop those resources to meet those needs. Yeah, that sounds great. Certainly uh, an assessment that, that I agree with from Deep Blue's standpoint and looking forward to, to seeing how we can cooperate on that in terms of expanding and attracting that type of talent and those types of technologies. Is there anything else that we didn't get a chance to talk to talk about yet that uh, you wanted to bring up? Blue tech is not a niche field and it, ob- uh, it often gets labeled as it. Um, blue tech is not niche. And 
that blue tech is a oh very much so an overlap if you were thinking about a venn diagram of climate tech right um so i think that it's important to make that that distinction that it is not something separate but it does have a very different pathway and trajectory in terms of the startups in those fields and that's why having patient investors that understand what it what they need you know innovating in the marine environment is really really difficult and it's extremely unpredictable and it's a very different pathway to success however i will say that it addresses a lot of the same land based issues that the climate tech folks are also trying to do so i would say that you know in terms of investors or folks that are interested in innovating in this space it's really important for them to see that these things are one and the same. And just because you're creating something that's got a land-based application, think about the ocean, right? Maybe it works in the ocean. Maybe you can pivot and find a horizontal application for, for ocean-based tech as well. Um, and that these things shouldn't be siloed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you remind me uh, a bit from my work with the Clean Tech Open that the the development timelines uh, and horizons for software technologies versus hardware technologies, never mind big mechanical hardware mm. that is going to be uh, out in the ocean. The timelines for development are just much, much more complex and much longer. So they need that much more support. Exactly. Exactly. And I think everybody just has to be patient. Um, however, if you have a role to play in seeing those things come to commercialization, whether it's from investment or from a government standpoint or from a private sector standpoint of offering things like paid pilots, we have to collectively get on board with what that pathway for a startup looks like. And if we do that in a meaningful way at, with density and intention, then we will start to see things change quicker. But until that happens, everybody's just going to have to be very, very patient. Absolutely. So what's next for you, Haley? What are you most excited about in your personal or professional journey? So for me, um, I have been moving more into the business development space for Sea Ahead. So, you know, I'm, I've been working with government agencies, but I'm going to be expanding that a lot more to the private sector as well. And exactly on the point that I made previously, right, that's if we can get more private sector folks to be interested in this space, and get more dollars behind it, we're going to be able to see things move faster. Um, so I'm really excited to expand into that space more um, and learn as much as I can in this space. And then me personally, I have a deep interest in the policy aspect of this work. Um, so I really would love to get more involved in advocating for the needs of startups and the needs of innovators in the blue tech space, the ocean space, from a policy perspective, and as I said, coming full circle to the beginning, right, how does innovation push and disrupt policy? And then I'd love to be informing policymakers on what that looks like and how we can make policy to meet those needs. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, your, your passion and your commitment really shines through. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for the work you're doing. Certainly, it'll be fun to continue to talk about collaborations and uh, how we can grow our shared agenda in New Orleans because it's clearly well aligned and I think some really important work that, uh, that you're doing. Yes, agreed. Thank you so much, Greg. And thank you to Deep Blue for all the work that you're doing as well. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the Blue Economy Primer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Please help us spread the word and be sure to visit our website at www.deepblue.academy 
where you can find all of our available episodes, access important links and supporting information for each episode, send us your comments and or suggestions for potential guests and topics, get more information about our community engagement initiatives, and join our mailing list, as well as make a much appreciated tax-deductible donation to support our nonprofit education and research mission. Thanks again to the Dan Lucas Memorial Foundation and the Pontchartrain Conservancy for their critical financial and institutional support. Until next time, when we meet again on the ever-expanding horizon of the blue economy. Thank you.